Okay, good morning. Um, I will be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. morning. Merry Christmas. I have my Christmas sweater on. This is the one time a year we're in the red sweater, so it's in the closet. You got to use it. Uh, kids were great, huh? I thought the kids did a great job. We appreciate Christian and his wife, Michaela, leading them uh, in the charge there this morning. Uh, and it's great to see all of you here today. You know, there's nothing about that story that was just read, that incredible story, the Christmas story that was just read, that like shouts at us that this was some grand and glorious moment. I know the things around it, and we can point to it, and we can talk about, hey, what about earlier about Gabriel and different things, but that story, those seven verses that were just read... There are only modest moments, right? So if you're looking on the screen behind me or that bulletin or you're just tracking in your Bible, you could circle some things that are in those seven verses that talk about where Christmas began. And think about this. So in the first line, census, there's nothing exciting about a census. You know, I, and if you're on the census team or whatever, sorry, but there's nothing for the rest of us exciting about a census. It was for the entire Roman world. There's nothing exciting about that because in Israel, they were under the thumb of the Romans. This is not an exciting thing that they were occupied by the Romans. They went to register. Unless you're getting married, nobody else ex is excited about you registering. They're registering to be taxed. They were from Nazareth. Circle that, that name of that town, of that city. That was considered the worst place to be from in all of Israel. Nazareth, remember? Can anything good come out of Nazareth is what was said about Jesus Christ because that was not a great place. To, it wasn't a grand and glorious thing. And so then it says, she was Mary, speaking of Mary, she was pledged to be married. In other words, she's not married now. And oh, by the way, She's expecting a child. I can't begin to tell you how severely frowned upon this was in that culture 2,000 years ago. This is not a grand and glorious thing. And then, by the way, places Jesus in a manger. It would have been better off if they just would have put feeding trough. It was a feed. There's nothing glorious about a feeding trough. 
There wasn't anything special. And then the parting shot is, there was no guest room available. How many of you have ever had an experience where you're like searching for an available hotel room and there's nothing available? Has that ever happened to anybody? It happened to us as a family one time. We were traveling down... We needed to stop somewhere near Orlando, Florida. Orlando's a big city. It's a big town. And so we started calling all the way back in North Carolina on the phone. Hey, we're going to need a place to stay. No room available here. We called 20, 30 different places. I said, how in the world can there not be... Look, there's nothing exciting about no occupancy. There's nothing grand and glorious when the, there's no occupancy here. It's not like the innkeeper said to them, hey, look, all the rooms are taken, but I have the messianic suite open for you. Would, would that be okay? Would that would be okay? There is no indication here in this story that it was a great moment, but a very modest moment. Please, don't lose sight of that. It says in Zechariah chapter 4, very important words, do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. You know what the word small begin? I said, you know, I got to figure out what does that mean in the Hebrew? It means, this is what it means. Don't despise insignificant, ordinary, mundane moments of life. Don't despise them. There are things that you do that seem very small to you that God considers very great. I'm going to say that again. There are things that you do. There are things that you do that seem very small to you, that God considers very great. Mary and Joseph were not jumping up and down, singing with the sheep the night Jesus was born, saying, we've just changed the world. We've just changed the world. They weren't doing that. No reporter ran up to Mary and said, Mary, you just birthed the Son of God. What are you going to do next? We're going to Disney World with baby Jesus. Nobody did. It wasn't, wasn't a grand moment like that. It was a very modest, humble, ordinary, mundane moment that took place when Jesus Christ was born. These are modest moments in an ordinary stable, not a messianic manger. It was a set of very ordinary, mundane tasks that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ. Nothing special. Mary and Joseph were not transported to Bethlehem out of Nazareth on a cloud of glory. They walked. They packed their bags and they walked to Bethlehem. Here is something that all of us need to really think about just in our life, right? Because this could trip us up unless we kind of get this in our, in our minds, in our understanding about the way God works in this world, the way great things happen in this world, right? If we are waiting for God to do something great in our lives or through our lives or us to be a part of something great, which everybody that I talk to and all the studies I read, everybody's waiting for that great thing. Everybody wants to be a part of something great, right? If we're waiting for that great thing to happen and we're thinking that great thing's going to get kicked off by a great moment, you got to know that those great moments are the outliers, it's through a set of very ordinary tasks that God does great things in this world. So if you're waiting for the great moment to begin the task, stop waiting. Because God works in very ordinary events, all right? Here's something that you might want to fill in the blank on on this. Ready? World-changing world -changing events seldom begin with world-changing moments. World-changing events seldom begin with world-changing moments. Don't miss 
out on this. Don't allow yourself to get hung up on that and waiting for a grand and glorious month. This is what the Christmas story is speaking to us. Everything about that Christmas story in those first seven verses of Luke chapter 2 is about very ordinary moments, packing our bags, taking a long journey, being told there's no room available. How about going to the stable out back and get out of your mind any picture of this beautiful barn, some idyllic barn set in the countryside somewhere in the United States of America. And the barn is so beautiful and a bright and shining light, just the glory of God is born. No, no, a barn back then, a stable back then was alongside of a road. It was like a little cave cut out, like in the midst of everybody, of life going on. That's where, ladies, can you imagine giving birth there? That's where it happened, right there. It speaks of ordinary. It speaks of mundane, but that's where God works. He works in the ordinary. He works in the mundane, and we shouldn't miss out on it. I'll tell you a story from the Old Testament. God by the name of Naaman, his great military leader, right? It's a great, well-known, hero, military leader. But he had this terrible thing happen to him. He had the dreaded disease of leprosy. It was terrible to get leprosy back in those days. I mean, not, not, not only was it going to kill you, but nobody wanted to be near you. You were an outcast with leprosy. And so this great guy who commanded troops and was renowned in his country is now become an outcast with no hope. He has a girl, servant girl, in his home. And she's from Israel, and she said... You know, somebody should tell my master, Naaman, that there's a prophet down in Israel that can do something about his leprosy. Well, Naaman, he gets, he tells the king, the king says, oh yeah, go. Go and take all your, take all the troops, take money, make a big show. It's going to be a grand and glorious moment. It's going to be a grand and glorious moment when God does this great and grand and glorious thing in your life. And so he treks on off down to Israel. He gets to Elisha's house. And you know what? The first thing Elisha does, check this out. He doesn't even go out to see the great man. He doesn't even go to see the great man. He tells his servant, Elisha, the man of God, says, just go out, tell him to dip in the Jordan River seven times. Good, okay. So the servant goes, well, how does Naaman react? They said, wait a minute. God's getting ready to do a great thing in my life. It's got to get kicked off with something grand and glorious. And so Naaman, he just, he's like in a huff. He's getting ready to miss out. He's going back home. And one of his servants says to him, hey, if he would have told you to do some really great thing, you would have done it, right? And he's like, yes. Well, come on. Let's do this. Let's just go down to this ugly, muddy Jordan River and let's dip. And so he does. And he's healed of his leprosy. Now, think about this. He almost missed out. And you know what that says to you and me? What is it that each one of us is about ready to miss out on our lives because God wants to do something great and we're waiting for that great moment, that great thing, and instead God is like, I got a really ordinary thing that you need to do. How many of us are about ready to miss out on something great because we're unwilling to do the mundane, ordinary task? Okay, I want to show you some pictures. Let's look at this first picture. You know what that's a picture of? It's a gymnasium with people in it. Let's look at the next one. You know what that's a picture of? Somebody pouring soy in a funnel. How about the third one? Look at that great glorious moment there. We've got three guys pushing boxes up a ramp. 
Nothing too tremendously exciting about that. How about the next one? Now, those are bags of very cheap macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Did you say you agree or good? You enjoyed the mac and cheese? Uh, let's look at the next picture. There's the pot of mac and cheese, which somebody's going to have to clean up at the end. And then, then, then look at this final shot. Now, this pretty girl here, I can't tell if she's happy about the mac and cheese. She kind of has this look on her face like, why did you just feed this to me, right? You know, it's not, this wasn't, this wasn't a great and glorious moment. These are very ordinary moments. But these actions, these very ordinary actions, have changed the world. So, it started out with boxes, but it ended in hope. It started with boxes and ended in hope. It started out with us eating a 25-cent bag of macaroni and cheese. But what it ended with was somebody, a child in many cases, being set free from injustice. Isn't that amazing how that works? That's how it begins, and that's how it ends, with boxes to hope. You got out of bed early on a Sunday morning, and you went and you made meals for 100,000 people. Now listen, some of those people are going to receive the meal, right? And they're just going to take it. Thank you very much, right? Some desperate area of the world, they're going to take it. Thank you very much. But there's going to be a couple people in that 100,000 who are going to say, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Somebody on the other side of this planet took time to make a meal for me, and for some reason, God's going to get in the midst of that, and all of a sudden, they're going to say, wait a minute, I have hope. Somebody loved me enough to do this. And it's going to bring hope to them. Maybe a child. Maybe that child end up curing cancer. You have no idea what's going to happen. How about last week when we ate the meals? We ate these meals, right? And then we worked with IJM and we've worked with Compassion International to set free, many times, children from suffering injustice. You don't know what's going to happen with them. I understand the tremendous healing that's going to take place. What if you got the next Mother Teresa that's going to rise up out of that, the ripple effect from what you've done? You, you contribute to those offering boxes back there. Look, it's not a great and grand and glorious moment when you put your offering in those offering boxes. We don't have little lights above the offering boxes, and you know, and, a, and a, something comes across the loudspeaker when somebody drops something in there. Attention shoppers, we've just got another giver in the house. Right, we don't do that. We don't, we don't, we don't do that. It's, it's, it's not a grand and glorious moment. Nobody's cheering you. There's no pom-poms next to our offering boxes. That's where it starts with a very mundane, ordinary task, but what it reads results in us writing the largest check we've ever written in the history of this church, $50,000, to partner with the International Justice Mission. And believe me, they're going to do their job. They're on the front lines of fighting for justice around this world. I showed, you the, I showed you the graph last week of the impact that they're having on trafficking and on slavery and on issues of abuse. It starts with very mundane tasks. And by the way, the meals the challenge we had last week. We were going to try to raise $25,000 by eating cheap macaroni and cheese, right? And hoping 
that we could raise $25,000 to start our very own project, a child survivor program in Guatemala, our very own Grace Community Church's own, which we will go visit. Our youth group's going to go there this summer. They're going to take pictures. They're going to see the moms. They're going to see the kids. They're going to come back with the stories. We wanted to do that very own thing. And to be honest with you, I, I very much thought, we'll take a bite out of that. No pun intended. We'll take a bite out of that, $25,000, but we'll never get there in one Sunday. It's just not going to happen. How many people are going to eat mac and cheese? And I mean, right? How could that happen? So I want to tell you where, where we ended up. We, we, we did. We raised the 25000 We actually crushed the number. We have raised more than $40,000. Yeah, that's really cool. Apparently, you guys are big mac and cheese eaters, so this is just really awesome. But think about this. It started with eating a bag of mac and cheese, this cheap little bag of mac and cheese, a very ordinary task, nothing to get excited about. But where it ended up was changing the life of a child, changing the life of a mother who has no other hope. Think about that. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's where it starts. It starts with the ordinary. It starts with the mundane. That's what you do. It doesn't start with these great moments. It starts with modest moments. But it has this incredible ripple effect, especially when you partner with God. It has an amazing ripple effect. I'll just tell you one one other thing, just as a side note. I want to say this, because we started this whole thing on November 30th saying, you know what? Christmas is all about partnering with God. It's all about Mary saying, yes, God, I will partner with you. Remember? talked about that. God, I will partner with you. We say, hey, God, why aren't you doing anything in this world? And God's saying, I'm ready to do stuff in this world. Will you partner with me to do it? Because I just don't do it all by myself. If you haven't heard that message, go back to November 30th. This is where the whole thing begins. It's on our website. And when you partner with God, here's what I want you to listen. God always does more. He always does more than what you have. He always does exceedingly abundantly whatever you could think or ask. This is the way that God works in the world. So last week we had IJM here, right? These guys are on the front lines fighting for justice. It's awesome what they're doing. We know they're being effective. We're tracking their effectiveness. It's awesome what they were doing. They're the world changers. And they walked out last week because of what all of you have done. They walked out last week. And you know what they said to Elise on their way out in the parking lot? They said this whole idea that you guys have, this whole idea of working both sides of the table, prevention through Compassion International, preventing kids from going into abuse, and then on the other side, IGM rescuing the abuse. You know what they said? The world changers, the world changers said this to us. They said, that was brilliant. We're actually going back to our headquarters, and we're going to tell people at our headquarters, this is the way to go. God always does more. You guys are trendsetters. You've set the tra- you've changed the world changers. Does it get any more cool than that? That is an awesome thing. So, anyway, God always does more. Here's my question to you. What ordinary step is God prompting you to take this Christmas? What very ordinary step is God prompting you to take this Christmas? There's something if you don't know what the ordinary step is. I'm not talking about I'm talking the mundane pack your bag step. If you don't know what the ordinary step is, you got to know that. Oh, God, what do you want me to do in my life? Forget that. Wrong question. Hey, God, what's the simple, mundane, seemingly insignificant step you want me to take? You got to know that. You don't know that. You should go to that wall after this service and talk to our prayer team. These people on that prayer team pray all week for one thing, that you would hear from God, that you'd have an encounter. You've got to know what the mundane task is. 
I'm not talking about the world-changing thing in your life. I'm talking about the mundane thing. What mundane, ordinary thing is it that God is prompting you to do in your life? So, your trip to church this morning, did you arrive on clouds of glory here this morning? I, was it just an awesome trip this morning? Was it beautiful? For those of you who have kids, did your kids rise up this morning and call you blessed? Oh, mother, I bless you. Let us, let us go to church. It's going to be a wonderful day, Father. Let us go. Is that the, is, is, is that, is that the, is that how you floated in to this service this morning? I seldom get to be at my house, very seldom get to be, like almost never get to be at my house with the family together and coming to church. I just miss it because I, other places obviously on Sunday morning. So I, I miss all that. And there was one Sunday, there was one Sunday, happened a number of years back, one Sunday, but for whatever reason, I was with them and I traveled with them to church. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Does this happen every Sunday morning with all the yelling, five minutes, five minutes, <laughs> three minutes, I'm going to the car and then running back in. I am in the car. I am in the car. Run back in. I have started the car. The car has started. Get out to the car. And then we get into the car and there's one straggler left inside and the horn is honking. And then finally the backing out of the garage, right? And the sitting in the driveway for about six days and the pressure's mounting. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm on, if I would have had to preach that morning, I was on pin. I'm so stressed out. I couldn't have done anything. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this happened every day. And then, and then the garage door lowering, 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 lowering. And it gets about that far and it, and it it stops. This garage, what's going to happen next? I'm on pens and needles. What's going to happen next? The garage, and then it goes back up. And then here he comes. Here he comes. And he's not got his feet in the shoes. He's walking like this, feet half in the shoes, shirt, like two buttons on the shirt, the belt's hanging off. And then what's in his mouth? What is he doing? He's brushing his teeth. He's brushing his teeth on the way to the van. He's brushing his teeth. What is he doing? Oh my God. He gets in the back seat. We're driving on the glory cloud to church and he's <laughs> spitting toothpaste out the window, right? What is this? What is this? Is this the way it is? I know none of you experienced this in your life. Is You came on clouds of glory to get here this morning, right? It's very ordinary struggle. And then you come and it's a very ordinary service, you know. But every now and then, every now and then, every now and then, every now and then, God shows up and does some great and grand and glorious thing in your life. But that's how it begins, right? It begins with a very simple thing. Yet God's been challenging me for 20 years. Something that is so incredibly simple. John, I want you to get up in the morning. And the first thing I want you to do is I want you to discipline yourself to spend time with me. I want you to get quiet. I want you to pray. I want you to read. I want you to listen. Bam, bam, bam. Three things. Very simple. Many times I go down to my basement, right? I go down there. And I would love to tell you that there was, there's this light, like, glowing up out of the basement. And it's God, and he's drawing me in. John, yeah, let's spend time together. But that's not how it happens. The basement's dark. It's usually cold. I go down there, and... The kids are screaming, right? Getting ready for school or whatever. The kids are screaming. That dumb dog is barking, right? The cell phone is ringing, right? And that's how the morning goes. 
That's how the morning goes. It's very simple. It's very ordinary, very mundane. But that's what God, that's the simple task God's calling me to every day. And you know what? It's out of those struggles of those moments. It's out of the struggles of that very ordinary moment that God prompts me to other things that lead to greater things. But I would have never known a thing about it unless I had done the very simple thing. That's Christmas. That's the Christmas story. God works in the very simple things to make a difference in this world. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because the tax man said, I want to tax you. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because the tax man said, come on over here and register because I'm ready to tax you. Nothing glorious about that. Very simple. Today, today, Jesus Christ is considered widely as the greatest leader who ever lived on this planet, whether people believe he's the son of God or not. Okay? He's widely considered because of his influence. Leadership is influence. He's influenced this planet in massive ways. There are more than 2 billion people who call themselves Christian today. More than 2 billion people. Call, you know what? And it started with packing bags. It started with that. That's how it all began. And look where it has ended up. Jesus valued education. So his followers invented universities. Jesus valued life, so his followers invented hospitals and orphanages. It started with a packed bag. Jesus valued freedom, so his followers fight and continue to fight against injustice, issues of slavery around the world. It began with a packed bag, a very ordinary thing. The Bible says don't, be, don't despise the day of insignificant, ordinary, mundane beginnings. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out. What very ordinary step is God prompting you to take this Christmas? This is what Christmas is all about. There's something, everybody. There's something. Don't look for the bright lights. Look for the ordinary. What thing is it that God is prompting you to do? In 1963, a guy by the name of Edward Lawrence presented a theory to the New York Academy of Science. The theory is called the butterfly effect. The idea was a butterfly could flap its wings on one side of the planet and the other side of the planet would experience a hurricane. It was insane. He was laughed out of the room. What was shocking is a little more than 30 years later, a group of professors got together and said, you know that crazy guy that uh, visited us back in 1963? There might be a little bit of merit to what he was saying because we see that there can be a ripple effect. It has a super big, long name to it now. But they realized that our actions make a difference in this world. And they said there's actually some merit to it. Let me, let me back up another 100 years. So he did that in 1963. Let me take you, 1863, to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right up the road from here, a little town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and a school teacher by the name of Joshua Chamberlain. Joshua Chamberlain's an ordinary school teacher out of Maine, and he's now a colonel in the Union Army. And he is positioned at the far left of the end of the line in a battle against the Confederate soldiers from the south. And he knows he needs to hold his line. At 2.30 in the afternoon, the Confederate soldiers make their first charge against the line to break through the line. And Chamberlain and his boys are able to hold the line. Shortly after that, there's a second charge and a third charge, and they hold the line. The school teacher and his boys, they hold the line. During the fourth charge, 
Chamberlain was actually shot. The bullet hit his belt buckle, which must have hurt. But he didn't die. He got up, shook himself off, and kept fighting. In between the fourth and the fifth charge, he sat there and reflected for just a moment. After getting shot, this is what you tend to do. And he's sitting here thinking, I feel really sorry for my troops. I'm a school teacher. We're obviously up against odds that are against us in a huge way. I don't know if we can make it out of this. I wish that I had some knowledge to make a difference for my troops that are beneath me. He felt responsible and sorry because he wasn't trained in warfare. He didn't know what tactics to do. Hey, you know, Colonel, what are we going to do different? I don't know. I have no idea. Here we are. This is all you've got. So he felt really bad. And then there was a fifth charge. In the fifth charge, things got really bad because this time they broke the line. And they entered into a long period of hand-to-hand combat. Lo and behold, his boys, the school teacher and his boys, were able to push those Confederate troops down the hill one more time. Now they are uh, regrouping after they push them down the hill. And uh, as they're thinking about this and they're taking inventory of what they have, they have realized they have lost half of the soldiers. So the school teacher has 80 soldiers left. And by the way, what about reinforcements? Well, no reinforcements are coming. You got 80 people. This is all you got. And you got to hold this line because it's really important. Do we have ammunition? We don't have the ammunition. They got nothing. 80 soldiers, no ammunition, no reinforcements. They got a 12-year-old kid up in a tree watching look out. And all of a sudden he screams out, Colonel, they're forming again. And this time there's a whole lot more of them. They have reinforced So they're there talking about what they should do, and his first sergeant, Ellis Spear, says to him, I think we should quit. (laughs) Let's pull out and go. About the time he says that, his brother, the school teacher's brother, who's also under his command, screams out, Joshua, here they come. So the school teacher jumps up on top of a little wall that they are defending, And he stands and he looks down at all these troops who have begun to form this great mass of troops now running. They're running at him. And he folds his arms in full view of them and just stares in amazement. He has no idea what to do. And his brother screams at him, Would you please give us an order? And then there's silence. And he's standing. And the pressure's mounting. And he's staring, and he has no idea what to do. And his brother screams, do something. And he turns around to his guys, and he just says, fix your bayonets. And they just stared back at him. What? Their mouths are gaping open. What? And he screams the second time and says, fix your bayonets now. He looks at his lieutenant. He says, Lieutenant, I want you to execute a great right wheel. And the lieutenant says, what's that? But before the colonel could answer, the school teacher runs down the line telling all of his soldiers what to do. And the first sergeant says, Lieutenant, a great right wheel is an all-out charge. He's telling us to perform an all-out charge against an army that we cannot defeat. It was an insane move 
from a little school teacher in the middle of nowhere giving an insignificant order that had no warfare tactic to it whatsoever. Next thing they know, he jumps up on the wall, school teacher's got his sword, and he yells, charge. And all of his troops, they don't know any better. They said, okay. So they all, you know, charge! They scream, and here comes this huge army of Confederate troops up the hill, and all of a sudden they hear these Union Army soldiers screaming, charge, and running full speed at them like there's no tomorrow. It freaked the Confederates out. They were confused. They're like, wait a minute, all of our intel was they didn't have any reinforcements. They're out of, it's done, man, it's over. It confused them so much that some of them actually dropped their weapons, turned, and started running. (laughs) Within five minutes, the school teacher had his sword on the neck of a Confederate captain. And 80 soldiers, without any ammunition and without any hope, captured 400 Confederate soldiers. Now, you know what historians tell us? That if Chamberlain had not given that order to charge, Gettysburg would have been lost and the Confederates would have won. And if the Confederates from the South had won that battle, Gettysburg, if they had won that, they would have won the war in short order. And you know what the ripple effect is from that? If the South had won the war, the United States of America would have split into two countries or more than likely 13 countries and would have looked a lot like Europe in a fragmented continent. What does all that mean? I'll tell you what it means. About 80 years later, when Hitler is taken over Europe and the world needed a country big enough, strong enough, and wealthy enough to fight against Hitler, it would not have existed. And it began with a school teacher who said, charge. Everybody, your actions make a difference. You got up early on a Sunday morning, came to church, you got up early and you, you packed a meal you packed a box. How do you know what's going to end up from your actions? You have no idea. But you've partnered with God, and this is what you need to know. You need to know that you have brought hope to the world, and when you partner with God, you leave the results in His hands, and there is no telling what great, mighty thing that God is going to do. I want you to leave today knowing that your very ordinary, mundane task makes a difference in this world, and you should do them with tremendous hope and vision for what God might do through you. That is an awesome thing to be a part of. Now, I want to conclude with this. I have a quote for you from C.S. Lewis. It's on your sheets on the screen behind me. This is what he says, C.S. Lewis, brilliant guy. He said this, he said, I gave in and admitted that God was God. I gave in and I admitted that God was God. So here's the thing. For some of us in this room, actually for many of us in this room, we're searching, we're trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. What does this mean? And we've seen... We've seen followers of Jesus that maybe have um, bothered us or confused us or offended us. And then, you know, what do we do with all that? And what does that mean? Here's the thing. You have to come to the point, everyone, 
But do you say, you know what? I'm never going to get an airtight case that eliminates all of my need for faith about Jesus Christ. I have to give up on this moment in life where all of a sudden the glory of God shines down upon me. And it's like, ah, oh, yes, I got it. Jesus, you're my Savior. You know what's going to more than likely happen? It's going to be in a very ordinary service like this, very mundane. You're sitting here on December the 21st, 2014, and you're trying to decide, is Jesus Christ my Savior? This is the way it happened to C.S. Lewis. No bright and shining lights. Very mundane. And you'll have to say, you know what? I'm giving in. I'm admitting it. Jesus Christ is my Savior. Let me tell you one story and we'll go, okay? So it's Christmas. I'm hoping that you're going to get a present, right? What does it mean when you get a present? All over the Scripture, Jesus is described as a gift, is a gift. So it's like a present. He's like a present, like a gift. You know what happens when somebody gives you a present? To accept that present, you kind of have to admit something about yourself. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's just say, for instance, somebody gave me, a very well-intentioned person, gave me a present. I open it up and it's a book. And it's like, how to be a better preacher. <laughs> what, am I, what am I to do with that? If I'm to accept it, it means I have to admit something about myself, doesn't it? I have to admit. I want to sum up Christianity for you, really, just real quick. Here's Christianity. Forget all the tons of arguments that just fill our minds, which I love to do, actually. But for a moment, forget that. I'm sum up Christianity for you. It's you and I admitting we can't do this. That's Jesus. It's admitting we can't do this, so Jesus did it for us. That's all of Christianity right there. I can't do this. And so I'm asking, Father, forgive me of every sin and of every wrong that I've done. And I'm accepting the salvation of Jesus Christ because I cannot save myself. There's Christianity. It's a gift. We have to then believe, we have to then believe that we actually need a Savior. There's the rub. Are we willing to do that? I want to encourage you this Christmas to not miss out because you're waiting for some grand and glorious thing, but in this very mundane, ordinary moment on December the 21st to consider, as C.S. Lewis did, giving in, admitting that God is God in accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let me say a prayer, and um, I encourage you to, uh, to pray, you know, with me, if that's where you are, and to visit our prayer team over here. They'd love to pray with you about accepting Christ, the greatest gift of all this Christmas. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much uh, for this wonderful group of people. God, how exciting it is that we ate all of that mac and cheese and it turned into hope for children in Guatemala a long way away from here. We're thankful, God, that we can know that we know that we know that a difference is going to be made in a child's life because of our very ordinary actions. God, it is such a thrill to partner with you. Such a thrill to partner with you, Lord. Father, for the person here this morning, for the people, let me say, here this morning that are wrestling with this whole idea of Jesus Christ being Savior and a gift.
Lord, help each one of us who wrestle with that to finally be able to come to that very ordinary moment of giving in and admitting, I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. Lord, I just ask that you'd bless every single person here, that this would be a wonderful Christmas. God, that you would bless us and keep us and that you would make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us, Lord, that you would lift up your counts upon us and grant us your peace. In Christ's name, amen. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you for all that you've done. We love you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.